The sermon tonight is based on Psalm 51, which we already read together as our confession of sin. But since it is also the sermon text and since it is such a significant passage, we'll hear it again. Uh, You can find it on page 560 of the Pew Bible. This was uh, King David's confession after he was confronted concerning his sins against Uriah and Bathsheba. Please stand again as you are able for God's holy word from Psalm 51, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bowls will be offered on your altar. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You are dying. I am dying. We are all dying. We talked about this a little bit last week at Bible study when we were talking about funerals. You will die, and everyone you love will die, probably. As Christians, we're really the only ones who have the hope to add the word probably even to that statement. And we add that word because Jesus will come again and somebody will remain alive until that day. And those people will not taste that final moment of death. We might be among those people or we might not be, but For the purposes of tonight's sermon, let's assume we won't be. We will die, and everyone we love will die. Even if we end up being spared from that death, we should be prepared for it. And we're wise to prepare for it, because up until this point in history, with only one or two exceptions, everyone who came before us has died. Now, this is part of what we remember on Ash Wednesday, the the symbolism of ashes, reminds us that we are dying. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. But why is this? 
Why do we die? Perhaps we don't really question this, at least not the general question of death. In specific instances, when, when someone we know and love dies, we might question why that individual person died. But as a general fact of the universe, we know that's uh, just the way it is. We might even say something like, death is just part of life, which is a really ironic thing to say. So in that way, we might think that death is just natural. But it's really not, and you know what? We know this too. God has written eternity into the heart of man. And that's why we grieve over death. If death really was natural, if it really was the way the universe is supposed to be, there wouldn't be any grieving over it. But we grieve because deep down, we really know that this is not the way the universe is supposed to be. Death is unnatural. So why do we die? We die because of sin. We learn this in the third chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They craved his place in the world. They ate from the forbidden tree and death began. We die because of sin. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That is, death is the consequence or the result of sin. Now, when we hear that, we might think, or it might sound as if God invented death as a way to punish us. But that's not really the way it is. God did not invent death, just as he did not invent sin. God invented life. Death is really just the deterioration or the removal of that life. A better way to think of it is that death is the, the natural consequence of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they broke the natural order of the universe. Now, everything that God created was good. There was no sin. There was no death. The universe functioned exactly how it's supposed to be. And this included mankind. Righteousness wasn't something that Adam and Eve had to work for before the fall into sin. They didn't have to try to be good. It was just their nature. God created them good, and so they naturally did what was good. The universe, it was a, a, a perfectly balanced system. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it threw off that system. It introduced brokenness, sin, and death into that system, and it affected everything. Uh, to try to give an illustration of it, it's kind of like the water pump on your car. The water pump circulates coolant through the engine back to the radiator and round and round. Maybe you know this already. So if that pump stops working, it's not just the pump that gets broken, but soon the engine starts to get hotter and hotter. Eventually it overheats. Things start to warp and crack, and if you keep driving, eventually the whole engine will be ruined. Ask me how I know this. We might say that the water pump sinned when it stopped pumping coolants, and then that original sin of the water pump spread to the entire engine, and it caused the other parts of the engine to start sinning and dying as well. And pretty soon, the entire engine is sinful in the sense that none of it does what it's supposed to do. The original sin of the water pump led to the sin and death of the entire engine. Now, this is not a perfect analogy, but the general point is this. We should not think of death so much as a punishment, as if God is just so mad that he really wants us all to die. That is actually contrary to God's will. Instead, we should think of it as the consequence or the result of sin. 
when man, the pinnacle of God's creation, stopped functioning the way that we were supposed to, it broke the system. It doesn't work right anymore. And we call that death. And this is the relationship between sin and death. And so we should not think of sin merely as the bad things we do. If that's how you think about sin, you should broaden your definition. Before all of the bad things that we do, sin is the condition we have of just not being right. And so when we are tempted to sin, we feel some, and we feel some inclination to follow that temptation, that is already sin. And I don't mean that in the simplistic definition of sin, as if we choose to have that temptation, but I mean that we are already broken. We are already sinful. And that's why we feel the inclination to follow this or that temptation. Sin is not just the bad stuff we do. Sin is the brokenness that already exists within us. And in this way, in this way we can see sin as oppressive. Now, there's also a way in which we might oppress others by our sin. We do that. That is, we do bad things that harm them. But sin is also an oppressive force on us. It's a brokenness that we did not choose. It overpowers us. It captivates us. And it leads us into further sin. Our hearts are already out of order with God's good and gracious will for us. And so we sin because we are sinful. David says this in his confession. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was sinful even before he was born, and we were too. Now, in the midst of this, God invites us to come and confess it, all of it. And he promises to forgive because he has already forgiven. God's response to our sin is not to destroy us. God's response to sin was to take that consequence of death upon himself, and he did. In the flesh of Jesus Christ, God condemned all sin. In the epistle lesson, we read this great verse from 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin. That's literally what it says. God made Jesus to be sin. He took it all upon himself. He took it into his body. He actually became it. It's not just that he held it next to him on the cross like a bag of luggage. He took it into himself. He became sin. So we know that all of it is paid for there. All of it is atoned for. And this gives us freedom now to come and confess because in Christ we have become the righteousness of God. And so we have freedom to confess all of it. We have freedom to confess all the bad things we have done. And we have freedom to confess that we are just not the way we are supposed to be. And so at church, as we come into the presence of the merciful God, we have freedom to not be okay. And I want you to hear that. You have freedom here to not be okay. I suppose it might seem like the opposite sometimes at church. It might seem like church is the place where people have it all together. If that's how it seems, it's just an illusion. Sometimes we act differently just because the presence of other people changes our disposition. 
And so I might act differently at church than I do elsewhere, just because I see people who brighten my disposition. And it's not really that I try to act differently, but, but the setting changes my disposition. And so at the hardware store, you might see me sulking through the aisles because something in my house is broken and I can't figure out how to fix it. And for some reason, it makes me feel like the entire world is broken and everything is bad and awful all the time. And in these moments, I know that I'm not okay. But if I see a friendly face, then my disposition changes. And that probably gives me the impression, uh, that probably gives other people the impression that I'm better than I really am. And it might fool me too, because in that moment, I feel more hopeful. But when that moment is over, I probably go back to not being okay again. And it might be something bigger than just a leaky faucet. And that might happen to us at church too. We see a friendly face, and then for a moment, we forget that we're not okay. And so if you look around and you see people who seem to have it all together, or they seem to be doing well, just know that that might just be an illusion. And it's not like they're trying to deceive you. It might just be one of the few moments when they actually feel like they're okay. And remember that you might be fooling yourself too. And so remember why you're here. You're here because you're not okay. And this is the place where you have freedom to not be okay. This is where we have freedom to confess that we are broken and sinful. And so when I say to you, hey, how are you doing? You can tell me the truth. And you should be able to do the same thing with anyone else here. I can't promise it's going to work at other places because sometimes people just don't want to hear it. But here at church, we should have an open ear to that. And this is where, this is where not being okay actually gets addressed. And, and so we should be ready to pray for one another and declare forgiveness to one another. To go to church and pretend like everything is fine is like going to the doctor and when he asks you how you're doing, you say, pretty good, when you actually have a broken leg, a headache, blurry vision, and six other things. You have freedom to not be okay, and you even have freedom to admit that it might be your own fault. In Psalm 51, we read King David's great confession of sin. could also say it's his confession of great sin. To say that David was not okay would be an extreme understatement. He was a mess, and it was definitely all his fault. This is David's confession after the prophet Nathan confronted him concerning his sins against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. You can read more about it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In short, one night David saw a beautiful woman, and he wanted her. She was the wife of one of his soldiers who was off fighting in a battle at the time, and so this was very dishonorable. Nevertheless, David sent for her and slept with her, and she conceived a child. When David learned about it, he tried to cover it up by calling her husband back from battle. And David hoped that he would go home, sleep with his wife, think the child was his, and no one would be the wiser. It didn't happen, and David needed another plan. And so he sent Uriah back to the battle, with a letter for the commander ordering him to put Uriah on the front line and then, when the fighting gets fierce, fall back so that Uriah would fall to the enemy. And then, with Uriah dead, David could take Bathsheba as his own wife. It amounted to murder, of course, and not just the murder of Uriah, but also of the other soldiers who were with Uriah on the front line. Now, clearly, 
David sinned against both Uriah and Bathsheba, and we don't know how many other people. But in his confession, he says to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. Now that seems strange. But David's right. What David recognizes here is that first and foremost, he sinned against God. Uriah and Bathsheba were both created in the image of God. They belonged to God. They were his possession. By harming them, he was sinning against God. And God had joined Uriah and Bathsheba together as one flesh. By taking Bathsheba, he was sinning against the bond that God had created. God possessed both Uriah and Bathsheba. He loved them. And so David stole from God. Every sin is, first and foremost, a sin against God, because all people belong to him. We might think of our sin purely in terms of the harm that it causes to our neighbors. And so we might say something like, as long as no one gets hurt, there's no sin. But that's never really true. Sin always damages someone, often in ways that we cannot see. A better way is to see every sin as a sin against God. Now, this doesn't take our neighbors out of the equation. It actually puts them in the proper place in it because they belong to God and he cares about their well-being more than anyone else could. Furthermore, God sees everything. If we think only in terms of our neighbors, we might be tempted to cover up our sin. David was able to hide his sin from everyone else's sight, or so he thought, but he had done evil in God's sight. There was no hiding it. But when the prophet Nathan came and confronted David, David confessed, and God forgave his sin. And this is God's desire. Every sin we commit is against God and is done in his sight. And this is terrifying. But God has also promised to forgive. And that is his great desire. He does not wish that we would die. His will is to save us from the consequence of sin. He desires to forgive and heal. The payment has already been made by Jesus on the cross. And so God invites us to confess. He, can, he invites us to confess that we are not okay. He invites us to confess that we have hurt others by what we have done and by what we have left undone. He invites us to confess that we have sinned against him in thought, word, and deed. He already knows all of it, but he invites us to confess and he promises to forgive and heal. When David finally confesses, he asks for mercy. He asks for forgiveness. He asks for cleansing. He asks for a new and clean heart. And this is revival that he's asking for. Revival doesn't necessarily mean that you get excited or really fired up, maybe, but it simply means that God cleanses you. He gives you a new heart. He brings life where once there was only sin and death. Wherever there is forgiveness of sins, there is revival. So life and revival, they always follow confession. We never find revival by pretending we're okay. We never have revival by hiding our sins from God. But revival comes when we confess that we are not right, that we have sinned against our neighbors and we have sinned against God. And then because of the innocent sufferings and death of Jesus Christ, God 
forgives and he cleanses us. That's when he revives us to new life. He is already merciful to you, so come, confess, and be healed. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.